I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... It is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourself. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Thank Thank you. of democracy. Very good. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Democracy Sausage, which comes to you twice weekly from the ANU with the direct support of the Crawford School of Public Policy, the School of Politics and International Relations and the Australian Studies Institute. And wasn't it good to have Dr Jennifer Hunt back on the program last week, making such sense of the Trump debacle and the Republican Party's pitiable co-option to his treasonous behaviour? Seven Republicans did stand up and vote to convict, which is, you know, not uh, not nothing. They, that took some courage. And while it wasn't enough to carry a conviction vote, uh, 57-43 was still a pretty good majority. So as the Democrats said... Trump was probably found guilty in the court of public opinion and presumably by history too. We'll have to wait for that. If you did miss that podcast, by the way, the one with Jennifer Hunt, go back and take a listen. It's well worth it. Now, of course, this podcast is a product of the university sector and proudly so, but let's be frank, all is not well within the academy. The question is why? Just as the federal government reaches for science and technology specifically to meet the triple challenges of covid climate change and the rigours of an increasingly knowledge-based international economy, the universities themselves face some sort of severe weakening. International students have been barred entry with colossal funding implications for the unis and government assistance available to other sectors has been withheld. There is an apparent mismatch between what the government relies on from the higher education sector and how much damage it is willing to brook through the deprivations of the pandemic. Now, there are many issues within this, and I've got just the people to unpack them. Professor Andrew Norton specialises in higher education policy at the ANU's Centre for Social Research and Methods. Hi, Andrew. Welcome at last to Democracy Sausage. Thank you, Mark. Misha Schubert is Chief Executive of the Peak Body Science and Technology Australia and, like me, is a former press gallery journalist a long time ago. And, Misha, I should say, for the sake of full disclosure, that you're also, along with me, co-vice president of the National Press Club. And 
Bruce Chapman is Emeritus Professor of Economics at the ANU's College of Business and Economics. And he's also regarded as pretty much the father of HEX, Australia's Higher Education Contribution Scheme. Welcome, Bruce. Thank you, Mark. Andrew Norton, let's start with you. How dire is the situation facing universities? Have I over-egged it with that introduction? Well, it's perhaps not quite as bad as people thought for 2020 because the Chinese students were more willing to study online than we expected. But for 2021, it's probably looking overall a bit worse because many unis probably assumed that we would get a commencing student intake onshore in 2022, sorry, 2021. But that's really not going to happen due to the the ban on international travel. And so that's another year of commencing students lost. And that has what we call a pipeline effect, so that the students who would have been first years this year won't be second years next year or third years after that, meaning there are long-lasting implications. The other thing that's going on is this is the first year of something called the Job Ready Graduates Funding Package. And what's that is doing is reducing the average income per domestic student and introducing a whole lot of new red tape uh, bureaucratic controls over the university sector. So this is a very, very difficult year by the the recent standards of higher education. Does it it puzzle you the extent to which the, the government has effectively said to the universities, you're on your own? I mean, I know there has been some extra money that's come to universities in recent years, and we can come to that, but... Um, a fair bit was made of by, by the universities of, of, of effectively being locked out of the JobKeeper program. Uh, the attitude from the government has has been through you know the the, the darkest days of, of 2020, the the you know the lockdowns and and the um, job losses that have been endemic across a whole range of sectors. Uh, but it's the attitude has been towards the universities. Well, you know you've got quite a lot of cash reserves, you've got quite a lot of assets. Um, and uh, you've got a business model that you might want to think a bit more about um, and, and go off and do that work. Look, I, I perhaps have more sympathy for the government's position on this than some other issues because I think the reality is that because universities essentially had their domestic revenues guaranteed, uh, very few of them are likely to have qualified for JobKeeper had they been eligible for it on, on normal criteria. And so really what the government eventually did do after you know three changes of the JobKeeper rules was to announce in the budget last year this $1 billion extra in research funding uh, for 2021. And I actually think that was a much more strategic support for the sector uh, than JobKeeper, which would have gone at best to a few universities in a semi-random way, depending on their cash flow for the year. So they should have done what they did in the budget months earlier, but probably that was a better way to support the sector than JobKeeper. Do you think that's widely appreciated, that point you just made, within the university sector? I'm probably the only one who thinks that, but <laughs> uh, but nevertheless, I think the sector was obviously desperate and they were clutching for you know, any possibility and JobKeeper was one of those. But I think for sectors with you know mature relationships with the government, with significant public funding, and private schools were basically in a very similar situation, the government already knows how to fund these sectors directly knows how to do it efficiently rather than just spraying it across every every firm or every entity. And therefore, something like what eventually happened would have been the better way to go. It's just a shame that because the, the rules around JobKeeper were not designed with universities in mind, they had to be changed several times in order to, to get the eventual result the government, I think, wanted from the start. Do you think that the uh, the general view of the public is that the universities? 
put all of their eggs in the in the overseas student basket and you know are inevitably paying the price for for having done that look there's definitely a fair bit of hostility around the international student issue so if you you know write something for a newspaper on this take a look at the comments and so there is uh, some scepticism about this. On the other hand, I think we're in this kind of interesting situation where, you know, for years people have been pointing out the obvious, this market probably won't last in boom time forever. There are all sorts of things, the kind of conflict with China we've got now, changes to visa rules, you know, competition from other countries, all sorts of reasons why uh, this market might decline eventually. But no one predicted a total stop via the international travel ban. But what I really think is that, you know, we should have done, uh, the UDs probably did something reasonably sensible. So, look, we know this is not going to last forever, but while it does, there's billions of dollars on the table. And so they probably thought, we know it's risky, but there's huge benefits in the short term. Mr. right on cue, the PMs reported in today's News Corp papers, I think the Herald Sun in Melbourne, uh, saying the pandemic has highlighted a vulnerability in the business model of the universities. Uh, he says, I think it's always time for universities to consider their economic model. I'd be surprised if it hadn't taken, if it had taken them this long to do that thinking. I, mean, I guess like being, perhaps being the old political journalist rather than any sort of official capacity you have now, but you know, we always used to sort of look at messages like that and sort of read what it is that they're saying without perhaps saying it directly, the, the underlying assumptions of it. Is is there a message in there from the Prime Minister to the universities that, you know, you've you've had it pretty good? And as Andrew was just saying, perhaps you should have been doing a little bit more preparation for a change in circumstances, albeit that this has come about a lot more suddenly than pretty much anyone thought it might. Well, look, I think what I'd say is that there certainly has been a lot of careful thought uh, within the university sector, including the sort of science and technology parts for which I speak in my current role, about how do you, um, you know, navigate, um, you know, risk with any kind of market-based engagement um, and, uh, you know, lots of grappling with that over many years. Um, but I think it's also really important not to rush past the net, vast net positive benefits to Australia of having international students come into our university system. I just want to spend a moment on that. Mm. So in addition to bringing in a headline stat that the ABS put at sort of $40 billion worth of money every year coming into Australia's economy, let's say that Which again, Which makes it the fourth billion. largest export sector in Indeed. the economy. Indeed. Fluctuates around between fourth and third, depending on what's happening mm. with our uh, commodities prices, as you you know, um, yeah. uh, but that's a huge income uh, earner for the country. And I think on last check, it's not, you know, that all that money doesn't go straight into universities to fund tuition fees. So a big portion of that money goes into our economy. It's the, the, the money that an international student spends at the local corner shop getting, you know, their dinner and uh, groceries at the supermarket. It's money they spend on rent. It's money they spend on transport. It's money if their families are sufficiently wealthy to bring them out at the end of uh, a degree to graduate and the family takes a once-in-a-lifetime tour around our tourism destinations. Mm. This is important money in that context, but even more profoundly important in my mind is the cross-cultural benefit that international students from the myriad of other countries, particularly our geostrategic region in Asia and with a rising China in the region, uh, when, when all of those students are coming into our university systems and classrooms, there's a cultural breadth that is possible. 
And I say this as someone who did my own master's degree in the United States and started my degree six weeks before the September 11 terrorist attacks happened there in my journalism master's course. And I was in a deeply multicultural uh, class with students from all around the world as well as <clears throat> American students. And the kinds of conversations that we were able to have, you know, the, the student from Pakistan talking about the rise of the Taliban over the previous mm. decade, students from all around the world, students from the Middle East talking about the kinds of um, pressures and cross-currents that were happening in the Middle East about American foreign policy in the world, uh, Americans grappling uh, with the circumstances of their country being attacked on home soil, something that was unthinkable. And so the cross-cultural nature of those classroom, classroom conversations can be this invaluable tool. And then you think about the history. We've had a fi five to six decade trajectory as a country of building an international student engagement. It started with the Colombo Plan in those post-World War II years. And there it was considered to be an aid intervention. So we would bring the best and the brightest from Asia and give them an Australian university education and send them back to their home countries. And this was kind of seen in that kind of context of soft power, soft diplomatic power that we're Indeed. projecting into the region, establishing person-to-person -person links and uh, you know, selling, essentially, for want of a less crass word, uh, the Australian message. That's right. And you look around the cabinet rooms over the last two decades in particular of many of our Asian neighbours and uh, almost to a cabinet, you'll often find someone who's got an Australian university education from several decades hence. Yeah. So, you know, that's been a really powerful tool. And similarly, the next generation of young, brilliant talent from our region. And some of them, a, a, very, a small proportion, but some of them actually stay. And so we're bringing that cultural capability and strength into our own uh, broader workforce uh, research system as, as brilliant, gifted researchers. So we're actually snaring part of the global intellectual capital pool and talent who will be the people working in our universities on the next frontier in emissions uh, reduction technology, the next frontier on COVID vaccine treatments. Um, that's a vast, vast benefit to Australia. Bruce, it's really an interesting point that Misha makes about, you know, that, that student experience. But one of the criticisms of Australian universities has been that the um, the majority of overseas students, the biggest single group has been from China. So essentially from one nation. Uh, and uh, and that has raised concerns about what the student experience is for both those people, but also for others who might be in a class, you know, 80% of which might be made up of Chinese students. So even the Chinese students who are coming to Australia for an Australian education experience or for that kind of multinational kind of experience that Misha was talking about at, at Columbia, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, th there's, there's some concern that that's been compromised just by the in the sheer size of the of the Chinese contingent. As, as an educator, a lifelong educator, any thoughts about that? Yeah, I do have some thoughts. The first point I'd make is with respect to what's happened with uh, government expenditure and international students and our reliance on that, what you were talking to, Andrew, about. It's really important to understand that over the last 30 years or so, there's been less than full indexation of university grants. So I think it is kind of a bit tough to say to the universities, oh, you needed a smarter business plan and why are you kind of focusing on that particular market when it, it might be vulnerable? And, of course, no one could have anticipated what happened in the last 18 months. It's been so extraordinary. But if you're a university administrator or a vice-chancellor and you're not getting full subsidies for the employment of your staff, what do you do? And the answer is going to be if you care about the quality of your researchers and you care about the teaching facilities and all those things that make a university really good, you'll take 
you'll take the financial resources where you can get them. And there's a broader issue which you've just raised, which is, is the portfolio a bit unbalanced? And there are arguments that I think would support that. I've had classes, master's economics classes over the last few years, which have been, uh, admittedly, they're the kind of technical subjects which would attract people with a Chinese background, but they've been very much dominated by Chinese students. And I I think as an educator, I see the costs in that a bit. Mm. There are problems with some problems, not major, but some issues of expression uh, with the English language. And the students will often, and this is this is not very evidence-based, but I could see it, uh, just kind of in an ad hoc way, the students would, of course, being normal, a tribal, they'll hang out with their mates mm. and their mates speak their language and, and I think there are a cultural costs for them as well. But I actually don't think it's the role of the universities to fix that directly. They can Because they don't have a, what we call an economics of welfare function which includes the welfare of Australian society or even the welfare of the countries necessarily the students come from. They're driven hugely by financial need and financial constraints. And that's why uh, I think you've we find that in my view, and perhaps implicit in your view, there has been an over-concentration, but I don't know how you fix that without first addressing the uh, nature of the subsidies that come from the federal government, which have encouraged, without doubt, this kind of reliance on where you can get the, the cross-subsidies. And the cross-subsidies are huge. Uh, I know that the, with the master's courses, something, I would say at least 50% of the fee is a subsidy for other areas uh, across the university. So College of Business and Economics will be um, subsidising philosophy and music and that's all of that is fine, but even within particular faculties and disciplines. So you've got to start with what's it, what, how do you expect these institutions to operate in their own self-interest and I think that they've been doing that and it's hard for me to believe that with the current financing arrangements that will change. Well, I'm so glad to hear that the dismal science is actually subsidising music. I mean, that's lifted all of our hearts, I think. There'd be no joy without <laughs> economics. No joy without economics. Another thing that uh, just comes to mind as you're talking about that, that as we're all talking really about that um, uh, role of a large number of uh, Chinese students coming in is that we have a very low level of Asian language proficiency in the Australian population. So it is, it's interesting the extent to which that hasn't succeeded in kind of, um, you know, having a, a sort of a reflexive result in the Australian community. I don't know if there's any anything can be said about that observation other than the fact that we remain defiantly monolingual in this country. Which is, <laughs> yes. It's sad. Let's just take a quick break and back in one moment. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. 
Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, we were talking about Chinese students and uh, the nature of, I suppose, the, the, the business model that, uh, that um, Australian higher education institutions have, have been working under for some time. One of the things that, as I said in the introduction, that we uh, we hear from the government a lot is this sort of technology, not taxes line. It's uh, it's the uh, it's the someone said the other day on Twitter, it's the new three word slogan, and it is three words. That's true, but uh, the prime minister is using it to argue that, uh, say, in the face of the uh, climate change challenge, that um, it won't be a tax that the government is using. It's going to be they're going to get to this net zero by 2050, once that becomes the official target, which it isn't yet, not expressly anyway, um, that that's going to be uh, achieved through technology, not taxes. Uh, so I'm just wondering, do any of you think there's a mismatch between that kind of, that kind of idea um, of relying so heavily on technology, on cutting-edge research, on the provision to the economy of a super-skilled, highly-credentialed workforce, whilst the universities are, are in such contraction mode. Does that, does that sit comfortably with you, Bruce? Uh, I'm not exactly sure what it means uh, because if, if the argument is, well, the only way you can kind of act as a government is by putting a price on carbon or let's call it a tax or an emissions trading system. There are many other things that can happen. It just so happens that just about every economist in the world thinks that if something is very deleterious for society, you don't want to be subsidising it, you want to be taxing it. That's basically what governments do. We find things that, or governments look for things that are propitious socially and subsidise them and things that are harmful, like pollution, for example, or climate change, for example, should, uh, there should be prices that reflect that social welfare. And that's why economists, I think, generally over the last 15 years have been frustrated about the debate. The debate has been politically driven in all kinds of weird short-term ways which don't seem to give weight to the social costs of climate change. But with all that said, there are reasons to be optimistic that these markets are going to start and already are delivering in the technological way that the Prime Minister seems to be endorsing. And that that those changes in the nature of energy, and I'm not an expert on this, but from what I can gather, have been quite quite important behind the scenes and will continue to be. I think what governments have to do, rather than only to say we don't want to tax this, is to ask the question, are the regulations and subsidies that are actually leading to the least propitious outcomes? And I think a close look at that would probably suggest that that's the case. Andrew, this is uh, obviously a a kind of a political line, isn't it? Technology, not taxes, um, because it is driven to a large extent by the positions that, uh, that have defined the two major parties over the last decade, dozen years really, um, since since the election of the Rudd government, uh, a sort of a pro and anti-emissions trading 
position and uh, all the political capital that was made by the coalition over the carbon price being a carbon tax, which which really you know Tony Abbott rode to power on in in 2013. So it, it's all there's, there's so much politics in this and. What Bruce was just saying, uh, I, I assume you'd agree with that, that the, the basic principle that if something's not desirable, you tax it or, if, or at least you put a price on it so that, uh, so that the market can make a decision about it. Well, I, th- I guess the, the important point here is that taxes and technology are not opposed, that the, one of the purpose of the tax is to encourage people to develop the technologies because they have become more financially viable or more financially attractive. And so the two go together. I guess the role of the universities here, though, I guess, is you know, fairly heavily on the invent the technology side. I guess this is actually quite a big debate in sort of around higher education. To what extent are universities highly important to the whole innovation process? That they they tend to be very early on at the invention stage, but that isn't necessarily what is the most important thing in getting something out to market that's usually in the corporate sector rather than the universities. Can I add something on that, which is this, the word technology and how it relates to universities uh, in a sense implicitly poses the question, can governments affect the prices of particular disciplines that might actually more would deliver better technical outcomes or technologically oriented outcomes? And the government is, attempt, is attempting to do that right now. Yeah, it's got its uh, finger in that pie right at the moment, hasn't it? In terms yeah, and of it's a very... Changing the price, it, entry price of... Uh, some degrees at the expense of, say, some in the humanities. That's that's correct, and um, I'd just like to comment on that. Yeah. Uh, I think it's very misguided for several reasons. One is that it's almost impossible with any accuracy to believe that we understand the nature and the needs of a, the future labour market. We just don't get it. And it's a sexist term, but it was uh, very popular in the 1960s. It's called manpower planning. And the idea sort of got a bit of a huge government intervention slice to it. Basically says, we need more blah blahs, so we better have lower prices for learning to be a blah blah. Mm-hmm. And the predictions were almost extraordinarily accurately wrong. They were always all over the place. And one of the major reasons is there's so much substitutability between education disciplines and what you actually learn to do. Most of the skills that we have, we learn on the job. And there can be a very weak mapping between what you learn at a university uh, across the board. But in some areas, like law, for example, or accountancy or dentistry, I mean, you know, your accountant pulling your teeth out or your dentist doing your, your tax return, we accept that. But the idea that you can actually affect the, those supplies importantly is is very uninformed. And the other point is, um, and I've just been doing research on this with uh, my colleague Gurav Kemka from Finance, ask yourself the question, if you're 18 years old, and that's becoming impossible for me to imagine anymore, but if I'm <laughs> 18 years old, and they've changed the price. So I always cared about humanities. I wanted to learn Italian. I'm interested in philosophy. Mm. Uh, and now it's going to, on paper, it looks like a $20,000 increase. Well, shock horror. If it was on, if it, that was real, you, you would change your mind to some extent, but it's not real. The hex price is the following. 
it's a debt that gets paid in the future depending on you being over a threshold, which is currently $47,000 a year. So let's compare last year humanities student with the new humanities student. The ex- So if I'm 18 and it'll take me three or four years to f- do complete the degree, then it'll take me a year or two to reach the first threshold, then it'll take me eight years to pay off the, uh, the existing humanities charge. Let's all add that up, add all that. I'm up to 15, 15 years. Now at 18, you tell me this is what's going to happen to you when you're 33. That's nearly double their age. They have no idea. Anyone over the, th- the age of 30, they kind of can't cope with imagining. But this is the empirical question. If I'm 18 and you're saying to me, we are now going to add a few extra years of you repaying your humanities hex debt because that's what it does. No more is paid back in any given period. You're going to have to pay something like $15 a week more starting in 15 years and going for two two or three more years. Well, economists use a term called discounting. It basically means any th- things in the future don't matter as much. And if you've got a high discount rate, and young people tend to have high discount rates, what is going on in 15 years' time is essentially irrelevant. And what Gurev and I did was to model all this using the census data and to ask the question, what is the actual present value that is the true financial uh, impact of these changes uh, observed at age 18 um, from the increase? And the answer is about a cup of coffee a week for life. So ask yourself this question. If you always love pussycats and you want to be a vet, uh, this is not the humanities example, I'll think of one, and suddenly it's going to cost you an extra cup of coffee for the rest of your life to become a vet, you say, oh, well, uh, that's out. I want to be a chartered accountant. I want to be a civil engineer. Of course you don't. People study stuff because they like it and they're good at it. So uh, the person who wants to be the philosophy major, even if they could get into accountancy or commerce of some form, they'd probably be pretty bad at it. So when we ask that question, if you went into an area which was not your comparative advantage or your love or your joy, where are you in the earnings distribution by that discipline? Chances are you're even worse off, even though you're paying less. Yes, well, this, of course, is one of the great, uh, you know, is the great trick, or it's not really a trick, but the great device of, of higher education contribution scheme, isn't it? That it defers payment. It's an income contingent loan. You, are, you have to earn a certain amount before you even are paying it back. Yeah. Um, that's not, I mean, this is something that you were involved uh, crucially in, in, the, in the creation of way back in the 80s. Well, one of the critical points which you've raised basically is can you have a pricing system with a student loan where the prices don't damage people or influence them too much? And that's where HEX comes from. So it was designed to have a muted price effect. Mm. It was designed to say, you haven't got any money. We'll offer your insurance. And if you don't graduate, and meaning you won't get over the threshold or it'll take you a very long time, we'll subsidise it. We'll protect you. And one of the consequences of a system like that is you can't get so-called market efficiency through the variation in the price because the price that you observe has got nothing to do with actually what is paid, which actually is different for everybody. Everybody's hex price is idiosyncratic to them. That market intervention you were talking about, which is really what the government has uh, attempted to do by changing the, those prices of those degrees, you're saying won't, won't have that effect well, because of the muting effect of hex. Yeah, that's, that's a prediction that I'm fairly confident about. Every time hex has been changed, the behavioural effects have been Nothing. We can't see anything. I mean, this, the 
the there were big changes in the d- discipline prices introduced for the first time a three tiered arrangement in 1997 under John Howard's prime ministership could see nothing in the applications or very little in the applications uh, and when hex was introduced i mean it went from zero to 25% of the costs enrollments went up and they went up because the government had more money so what economists call the price elasticity of demand, the responsiveness to price, is really, really tiny. And it's particularly tiny when you've got, um, even if you had a normal, not a normal, a typical student loan system like in the US, it would be muted there. But it's much more muted in Australia or England or New Zealand where you've got income contingency. Yeah, so those countries have got that those uh, that hex-style income contingent loan funding, uh, but many countries don't. As you say, the US... Um Canada, um, Thailand, places like this that do not have those sort of income contingent loans. Uh, you, you know, you've studied in the US, Mish. It, it obviously changes pretty fundamentally the nature of access, doesn't it? It does. And I think that kind of key equity insight um, that, that Bruce and, and colleagues were responsible for designing in the Australian context has enabled a much more inclusive model of university participation here. Uh, in the US, you will see students making, you know, having to make really hard choices because if they graduate and then they've got a, a loan to repay with and potentially they, a real we, commercial interest rate attached to it that's straight right, away. Even if they're unemployed. Yeah. Uh, that's an enormous pressure. And that idea that, you know, this is uh, an um, a, a, a debt that would be repaid if you realise the sort of notional graduate earnings premium on that education um, has been the vehicle, a powerful vehicle for inclusion uh, and I think for social cohesion across the Australian community as well. Can I just pick up on something else? Um, I, I do want to put in a word here for sort of um, some level of um, enthusiasm and signalling to young people though about the kinds of things, absolutely respect your view, um, Bruce, about the sort of uh, trying to, governments trying to do granular prediction about job creation and growth, industry by industry, sector by sector. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, there are some broad trends that we can potentially illuminate and identify and get ahead of. So if we think about the sort of deep skills of some of the scientific and technological changes that are coming at us in real time, fast, I think we do know broadly that we want more of those skills embedded in our population. We've been terrifically successful at bringing in some of those skills and also, you know, we are no slouches ourselves in the sort of practice of um, very, you know, successful on the world stage, global science. You know, the number of Nobel laureates, including the Vice-Chancellor of this great institution, who are part of um, the Australian university system and the scientific research system in our country is is, is terrific. Um and particularly on the technology front, there will be seismic changes in the course of not just our lifetimes, but I look at my young children, one of whom has just hit high school this year, and I think about the kind of career he'll be stepping into even, you know, five, ten years from hence, uh, from now. Um, the kinds of skills he will need to have just to function in a workplace are going to be much more technologically dependent, I think, than when my, grad- when my generation stepped out or even the one who's just come out of schools and universities now. So I think the pace of those big leaps in the sorts of minimum skill sets required to function in the workplace will yeah. will accelerate. But I think um, what I would say is I think there is a role for government to enthuse about the hugely important role for yeah. science and technology and not just for creating shiny new tech tech industries or what we call deep tech uh, startups and capabilities, which are science and engineering informed uh, tech, new tech companies, but also to think about how do we actually extend the lifespan of our iconic traditional industries, agriculture, mining, other things that with the uh, introduction of new technologies, new capabilities, new approaches, 
can actually protect some of those, uh, you know, large-scale job numbers around our country with our more more traditional uh, economic and jobs profile. So there's all of that. I think there is an opportunity here, um, just sort of picking up on a previous point that you'd made as well about the sort of quantum of investment we want to make and capturing strategic capability for our country. So I think the lived experience of COVID, when the borders shut around the world and every national government looked at themselves and looked around their cabinet tables and into their public service and went, what sovereign manufacturing and uh, provisioning capability do we have here onshore? And really, I had to think anew about some of the capabilities that they had. Um, Here in Australia, we saw some rapid pivots out of other industries rapidly retooling factories and things to become PPE manufacturers. Um, But an opportunity to do more of that, taking university research and translating it faster into services and products. So this goes to the point Andrew made earlier about you know, sometimes universities have been seen as doing that early stage research of the blue sky or foundational research. You come up with a new insight that is the big potential leap forward, possibly arguably less successful at the bit of taking mm. a nearly there innovation and, t- and getting it over that last hurdle into a yeah. job or a product or a service that we can then commercialise and sell. There's, mu- there's really strategic scope for us to do more of that and I think there's a really uh, important opportunity for the government to seize in the next little while to actually uh, uptick the level of investment we make in that sort of research translation, research commercialisation space. That's a very good point, isn't it, Andrew, that uh, it's all about the, the funding at the, at the most basic level for universities and the resourcing of them. Uh, it feeds into the process at the early stages. As Mish says, it's not necessarily associated as as clearly with um, commercialisation of technology, but you can't have one without the other. You can't, but I think you know, we have to be realistic about what universities are good at, and that's really at the knowledge creation end, probably at the start of the innovation process, and universities aren't particularly designed to commercialise products. So I think that's, they're fairly early on. Just one other thing to about the sort of promotion of STEM, which government's been doing a lot, particularly since the Rudd era, I think this needs to be nuanced more than it is because one of the things we have seen over the last decade is a very big increase in the number of students studying biological sciences in particular, and that has led to terrible employment outcomes. It's a very oversupplied market. And so we have to be careful about what kinds of messages we are giving young people. So it's not true that all STEM options have good outcomes or or meet national needs and Therefore, I think some of what we've been doing has actually been quite misguided and students would have been better off probably not hearing this message. Now, Andrew, one of the things that uh, you do as a, as a, an expert in this area and as a, a commentator, I suppose, on higher education um, is that you are well aware of the relationship between the government and the universities. I noticed that uh, Professor Greg Craven, uh, former retired uh, Vice Chancellor of the Australian Catholic Universities, has recently made some observations about this. He criticises universities. He, he said at one stage they can't talk coalition, uh, and he and he calls uh, universities vice chancellors Olympic gold medal complainants uh, who have effectively squandered some of the goodwill uh, from the government. And he's, I think, particularly referring to the billion dollars of extra uh, research money that uh, went to universities, which we've already referred to. Um, do you think there is a problem in the relationship between universities and the government that sort of defines all of this? Look, I, I think there is a problem and probably even more with the coalition backbench than with the ministry. But, of course, the ministry listens to the backbench on certain issues. 
But I think there's probably a, a deeper cultural issue here, which which applies to how the universities relate to both sides of politics, which is they're in what I sort of describe as a master-servant relationship with the government, that they are probably too compliant with whatever the government wants them to do. And we're seeing this actually probably right now where even though they haven't really got very strong funding incentives to expand enrolments, they all seem to be doing that because that's kind of what's expected of them in this situation. And while at one level it's fantastic that young people are looking for a spot at uni this year, are probably going to get it, uh, it's perpetuating this situation where universities keep accepting bad deals from the government and as long as they keep accepting bad deals from the government, they'll keep them being offered bad deals. So my view is they perhaps need to be more commercial in their dealings with government, and that is probably more important than you know whether they can easily get a meeting with the minister or the prime minister or things like mm. that. That governments respond to you know real world incentives much more than you know, meetings or private lobbying. It's interesting that the vice chancellor of this university, Professor Brian Schmidt, uh, he gave his twenty twenty one State of the University address just last week. Um, and he talked about, you know, all the things you expect vice-chancellors to talk about, the value of universities, some of the things we've been talking about in terms of the provision of skills and, and expertise into the community and, you know, the extraordinary value that that is, uh, some of it harder to measure than others. Um, but, he, but he said this, The old tensions between the Australian polity and the Australian academy must now be recognised as an indulgence belonging to a less dangerous time. The consequences of university knowledge and political leadership not working together are now simply too high. I wonder what your thoughts about that are. I mean, it, it seems to be it sounds to me like there's some level of agreement between what he's saying and and perhaps the more direct comments, observations of uh, Greg Craven. I think he's probably right that they perhaps need to agree on more than they have. Maybe there are issues. There are certain what I would call largely side issues that greatly preoccupy the coalition backbench and ministers. Let's extent. So this issue of free speech on campus would be one of those. Uh, Vice chancellor's salaries are another of those. And I guess my view is that it would be possible to effectively close down some of these side issues so we can focus on the more important things. And so, you know, even though I don't think this, for example, model code around free speech is really necessary, it's not terrible either. Let's just sign it and get it, get it over and done with. I think probably for many, many reasons, the issue of vice-chancellor's pay is a big problem within the universities as well as uh, in their relations with government. Uh, chancellors are getting much more bullshit than they used to be. They're the people with the authority to bring those salaries back down to something more reasonable, as as Brian Schmidt has already done voluntarily. Indeed, indeed he has. Look, thanks. It's been really terrific having this discussion uh, with you, uh, Bruce Chapman, Andrew Norton, Misha Schubert. Uh, really great to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Now, just before we go, can I just uh, make one further observation or, or request, really, of you? We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast, and you can reach us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum, which is APPS Policy Forum, or via email at podcast at policyforum.net. Better yet, join the Pod Squad on Facebook. Find us there by typing Policy Forum Pod into the search bar. We're looking forward to continuing the conversation with you. Now, I'll be back later in the week with a Democracy Sausage Extra. So until then, bye for now. 